Hi, I'm your host, Grace Marino. And I'm Chelsea Fisher. Thanks for joining us today to drink and And deconstruct. This episode, as with all episodes of the Drink and Deconstruct podcast, represents solely host and guest opinions as stated by each individual. All situations represented are alleged and not statements of fact unless otherwise disclosed. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Our guest today is Alyssa Webb McComb. Licensed professional counselor in the state of Texas and former member of the Independent Fundamental Baptist Movement. She has been out of the conservative church for over 10 years now and supports people both personally and professionally in their deconstruction, specifically focused around deconstructing in regards to beliefs surrounding sexuality and relationships. Married and, at the time of filming, a soon-to-be mother of two, she is well-versed in the struggles and benefits of actively deconstructing from beliefs she grew up with and wishes the same for every former member. Actually, I am very glad that baby decided to stay in. I've been like feeling like moving from just like low cramps to like, I feel like I have a bowling ball sitting Ugh. in my pelvis. Mm-hmm. And so it's like at any, absolutely any day. So it's like, I'm glad we got to make it. Yeah. So when are you due? Um, I'm not due till March 5th, so about another week and a half, but my oldest was born 39 weeks, and then my family trends to be born early. Yep. So, yeah. (laughs) So we're racing against the clock. You could go into labor during this interview. We could. I mean, that would be quite a story. (laughs) Okay. So tell me about your experience with Christianity. Were you born into a Christian family or did you kind of seek it out on your own? What was that like for you? So my family joined the conservative, I I call it conservative Christian church. Um, In my experience, it was always the independent fundamental Baptist movement, Mm -hmm. Um, but they officially joined when I was eight. So I had some vague memories before then of like wearing jeans, I think twice um, before we joined the church. (laughs) Um, and I think there was some scattered, just like formation Christianity, but when I was eight is when my parents, uh, mainly my mom led joining the independent, uh, joining a church that was independent fundamental Baptist specifically. Um, they followed the teachings of Bill Gothard at the time. Gotcha. Okay. So I never had any like personal experience with Bill Gothard's teachings, <laughs> but I do know that is what the Duggars follow. Yes, there was, a, um, there was actually a lot of conferences. While I was never at a conference that the Duggars were at, our mm-hmm. church attended all the same conferences they went to. So all, all the teachings, all the courtship, the dresses, the, uh, all of that was how I grew up from eight until 16. And mm-hmm. then when I was 16, we moved and we joined a church that was prescribed to the Hiles brand of um, Jack Kyle's brand of independent fundamental Baptist. Yes. See, that's that's the independent fundamental Baptist that I have experience with. Um, yes. And from what I have like studied, because I didn't get into the church until I was like 14. Mm-hmm. Um, from what I have studied, the Bill Gothard people and the Jack mm-hmm. Kyle's people did not like each other. No. Like, no, they did not. It was a struggle. And that was actually part of where I feel like my belief started to splinter okay. was with that move. At the time when I was 16, I didn't, I wasn't able to label it as that, 
-hmm. but looking back I I now realize that was where some of my questions came into play because I'm a very literal thinker I'm very black and white and so to grow up for almost 10 years of my life having this is this is how you be a Christian Mm -hmm. and then to have something that was similar but still significantly different in a lot of ways being said the same exact thing that's where those questions started to come in my mind because I'm like this isn't consistent am I the mm-hmm. fact my parents shifted so much uh, that also is where those questions started to come in my mind going like well you said this but now this is true and that kind of double standard is where those like small splinters started to kind yeah. of make their way into my brain mm-hmm. so what what made them switch my dad joined the military and so we okay. And it was just the church that they clicked the most with. Um, so it wasn't a belief thing. Okay. It was just a location. Bill Gothard tends to be more popular down here in the South. And Jack Kyle tends to be more popular up in the North. Yep. That makes sense. I'm in, <laughs> I was in Northeastern Ohio. So yes, Jack Kyle's. <laughs> exactly. mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so speaking of Hiles, because I know you went to Hiles Anderson. Yes. Um, and that's kind of how Chelsea even found you to begin with was in a, in a Hiles Anderson. And I will probably bring you back if that's okay at mm-hmm. some point to talk specifically about Hiles and your experience there. But what I want to talk about that you mentioned was since you went to Hiles, um, you had to go to First Baptist of Hammond, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So your pastor was Jack Scott. Yes. That yes. was my pastor with Jack Scott. I was there from January 2011 until I moved away in the summer of 2013. I was only mm-hmm. at Hiles um, for a shorter period of time, but I stayed active in the church until I left in 2013. Okay. So for our listeners who don't know who Jack Scott <laughs> is, he is, in my opinion, a disgusting human being, but I was... Uh, attending youth conferences around mm-hmm. that time, 2011, 2012. Mm-hmm. Um, they would pack up everybody in the bus, go to Hammond. We would stay at Hiles for a little, you know, the whole thing. So during that summer, Jack Scott, and I don't know how long it lasted, but I know that it took place at youth conference right. in some instance. Jack Scott had an, I don't want to say a fair because that, you know, implies consent. He groomed and molested, I guess. Yes. Um, um, the way I was worded people is he um, showed himself as a predator. He had sex with an underage, underage woman that he took, underage girl that mm-hmm. he took across state lines yeah. for sexual advances yeah. and intercourse. Yeah. And I remember after that, It was at my church. Like I said, everybody loved Jack Scott. Mm -hmm. He was this man of God. He was like, oh my God, he's who you looked up to. First the pastor in your own church and then Jack Scott and then, you know, then God. (laughs) That was that that ranking. Basically. Um, So in my church, at least in my experience, it was poor Jack Scott, like poor, this poor man, he fell victim to the devil. Uh, we're going to pray for him, pray for his family. And I was sitting there like, what? Like that poor girl, her poor family, like yeah. she was, mm-hmm. her life has been changed forever. And I know that in my church, we started, it started being like not behind closed doors with 
more than anything less than four people. Like you couldn't have right. um, closed doors. You they took the blinds off of like the pastor's offices, whatever. Like at at my church, which I, I don't know why you would do that. Like if you know you're not doing anything wrong, or you're not, mm-hmm. you know, tempted to do anything mm-hmm. wrong. Like if you don't have that thought process, why is that? crossing your mind at all like that's not a normal thing in the outside world which is crazy but so yeah talk about how you your experience at the church and hearing what I'm sure was a lot of support for Jack um Mm -hmm. and a lot of like his wife shouldn't leave him um that's unbiblical he's a man of God that kind of stuff it was a lot um and to clarify for timeline because that Mm -hmm. was the summer of 2012 Okay. Is when that all came to light. Okay. Um, it's because I joined and started going to Hiles January of 2011. And then I left the summer of 2013 and that happened right in the middle. So okay. I was still very, very much involved, but it was the almost like I was trying too hard because I was starting to make friends outside the church mm-hmm. um, to give you an idea of my mental space. Yep. But I remember when that went down and even that service we're like why is brother lapina preaching today like it's supposed to be pastor's stop and we were all really confused not knowing that everything had come to light um, um, and everything that was coming out and so i was there as it came out live and it was definitely the overall tone was not at all that poor girl it was again like oh my gosh you know poor stop a we heard a lot of this is absolute lies this is not in any way true. So that was a big, big message that was being given. Mm-hmm. I remember, and even there, there's a picture that comes up on my Facebook memories where I'd taken a picture. I was a server at the time and I had like drawn a heart that said like Pastor Scott and um, Cindy Scott. And that was just like a reminder to like keep praying for them because, you know, the devil's trying to get in the way of their ministry and all of this stuff. And it was never a conversation about, oh my gosh, this poor, this poor girl who went through this. Yeah, And so that was uh, completely the story there. And it wasn't until after I got some space and left mm-hmm. that it was like a, to use the biblical reference, like the scales fell from my eyes. And I was like, what in the world? But we were so blind. And I think that speaks to just his charisma and how he taught and the just complete authoritarian way that he spoke and mm-hmm. how dynamic he was just as a public speaker that you were sucked into that and yeah. sucked into that story um, so it was looking back it feels like a very weird time of my life but yeah. that was definitely it was not the final meal in the coffin that made me leave but it was definitely one of the final ones mm-hmm. that like once those scales did fall from my eyes and I was like putting everything together that was a huge one where I was like I can't based on how the church responded how amazing they thought he was as a leader like I absolutely can't align with this at all. Yeah. I don't blame you. (laughs) (laughs) But you said you were, this wasn't the final nail and that you were kind of making friends outside the church anyway. I'm assuming at your server job, probably. Yeah. I was Um, a waitress at Cracker Barrel because it was one of the only approved places for girls in the college to work at. Interesting. Approved places. Mm -hmm. Yes. (laughs) All right. So yeah, like what were some of the other things that were going on around the same time period that kind of, or I guess for the next year and a half that. Right. Um, So 
the one of the biggest beliefs that always stood out to me again as I referenced earlier those very black and white thinking mm-hmm. is the promise and guarantee of a successful marriage that was if I didn't narrow it down to one thing that is what absolutely broke uh, my beliefs in the church okay. because we were raised to believe you court or date this certain way you do this certain thing you marry this certain guy and there is an absolute guarantee like this is you will have an amazing life you'll have an amazing marriage, you'll have amazing kids. Like as long as you keep God at the center of it, that is all that matters. Mm-hmm. And then as I got older, I was seeing more and more that that law, that law right? That was just given was not true. Mm-hmm. Um, and as so as it worked with marriage and then also with kids, right? If you raise your child up to make it go, you should not depart from it. And as a scripture verse, for those of us listening, for those of you listening, it boggled my mind as I got older and now I was seeing friends getting married and I was seeing some of my friends who were older and their kids were not staying in the church and I was seeing things fall apart then I was meeting people outside of the church mm-hmm. that were proving all of these other beliefs that I've been told about people outside the church false and I feel like the how much they kept us sheltered and how much they kept us away from the people outside of the church really does so much Mm -hmm. in keeping people locked in because if you're locked in and you don't see anybody outside of what your belief system is, you have no evidence that your belief system could be wrong Mm -hmm. because then if people break that, they're very, well, they were wandering with God or whatever. And so to open my mind and to see and make friends outside of the church and start to connect with people, um, I stopped going to Hyatt just because I couldn't afford it anymore. Yeah. And so I had to find another job as a sign language interpreter. And so even there, I was meeting more people and expanding my social circle and uh, seeing all of these things that I had been taught as true that were not Mm -hmm. specifically on relationships because family has always been so important to me. And Mm -hmm. I've always wanted to have just a really solid marriage. I've wanted to be able to raise my kids really well and to have those promises which are so important to me and I see them falling apart around me and mm. the families around me I read if they're wrong about this how much else are they wrong about and if I've right. been giving myself so blindly to these beliefs this isn't adding up and I want to find the best way possible because if I keep going down this path I'm not going to have a good marriage and I'm not going to have great kids who want to stay in a relationship with right, me. Right. And so the, that was really a core part of my walking away. Yeah, I can see why that would terrify you, you know, especially since I think, at least from my perspective, because like I said, I don't know much about Bill Gothard, but I, I feel like the whole marriage and like courting thing was way bigger in Bill Gothard's teaching than in, in Jack Hiles, because Absolutely. We weren't, we weren't allowed to kiss. We weren't allowed to like hold hands or or hug or anything, but it wasn't like Mm -hmm. you courted in the same way that I see the Bill Gothard fundamental Baptists Mm -hmm. like courting. It was very very different. And so even there to have two very different messages about the best way to find a spouse Mm -hmm. was very confusing to my (laughs) adolescent and young adult brain. I'm like, I just want to do it right. Just tell me what to do. And no one could agree on what was the right thing to do. Right. Like, it's so weird that we'll get into this in a little bit about how the church hyper focuses on sex. Um, Absolutely. Like they say sex sells. I'm like, sex fills the seats yeah, in, yeah. in the congregation. Absolutely. Like, I, it's so funny because they like, 
go on and on against the sin. And then they're just the ones perpetuating it all the time. Same with like LGBT culture. Like nobody would make it as big of a deal. Like I want to live in a world. It doesn't make sense to me. Like I'm bisexual. Like I don't want to have to come out. Like every time I meet somebody, like it doesn't matter. I don't care. Normal. (laughs) Yeah. But like, it's, it's the church that others it so much that makes it so prevalent. to the forefront. Yeah. For our listeners, Alyssa, you are currently a licensed um, counselor, correct? Yes. Licensed professional counselor in the state of Texas. You are now working on your PhD. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's actually a doctorate of professional counseling. Mm-hmm. So it's a PhD is more research-based, where a okay. doctorate of professional counseling is more like advanced skills-based. Okay, perfect. Thank you for the clarification, because I definitely did not know that. I did not finish college, so I have no no idea. You choose that of all things to focus on. Um, Was it kind of your experience in the church or was it like, I want to go completely opposite of the church? What kind of prompted that? So I had no idea what I wanted to do or how I wanted to support myself after I left the church. Mm -hmm. Um, I was a professionally licensed sign language interpreter because Mm -hmm. I had worked really hard to be the perfect one day pastor's wife and being a colleague interpreter was a part of that uh but when I left I um sought out therapy and Mm -hmm. I will say that my parents specifically my mom did help me find a counselor because even though they were still in the church they knew like I was going through a really rough time and so Mm -hmm. I moved back in with my grandmother and they got me connected with a licensed counselor through their insurance in that she was not a Christian Mm -hmm. um or at least maybe she was personally, but that was not at all part of our therapy. And in working through my deconstruction and beliefs, it came up about what I wanted to do career-wise and what my values were, how I wanted to honor those values. Mm -hmm. And it really came down to being either a social worker or a therapist. And I just went to therapist Mm -hmm. and it felt like something. And I still, it does still feel like it is in perfect alignment with everything that I was brought up with, but in a way that is still currently honoring to who I am now, mm-hmm. in that I absolutely care about people. A lot of the soft skills I was taught in the ministry as far as listening, eye contact, reading body language, making people feel important, truly valuing them as a person, as a whole person, all of those things are so very true. And I very much get to honor in my day-to-day life, which I absolutely love because it feels like my life makes sense with this career choice. And then being having your doctorate is not required to be a state licensed therapist, mm-hmm. but I knew it was just a personal goal of mine. And when I hopped upon this program, which is actually through a Christian seminary, which is funny, even though I no longer um, prescribe or describe myself as a Christian, mm-hmm. I describe myself as a Gnostic, um, I really wanted to challenge myself in working through maybe some old hangups, because I wanted to be able to actively work with my clients, no matter their spiritual beliefs, um, mm-hmm. including conservative Christians. And I wanted to be able to work with them in a very healthy way that was not projecting my own trauma onto them. And then this program offered a sex and sexuality track and focus. And I knew instantly that's what I wanted to do. Um, the reason for that is because that was a part of my split and splintering from the church Mm -hmm. was a lot of the beliefs around sex, sexuality, and relationships. And so I wanted even more research and more knowledge about how to help people be able to look at these beliefs, to be able to actively deconstruct from the false beliefs, and to actively construct what is a healthy thing for them. And the difficulty with sex and sexuality is it's 
the distorted beliefs are so pervasive, not -hmm. just in the conservative Christian church, but just in American society as a whole. It's so hard. We always, within our track, we talk about how America is often very sex forward, but not necessarily sex open, but not necessarily sex positive. Mm -hmm. Um, Even from our public school sex education to the shame and the embarrassment that exists for people who have no exposure to religion Mm -hmm. is just widespread. And so to gain this additional training as a sex therapist, but then specifically as a sex therapist who is actively trained in how to incorporate spirituality into this is huge and especially mm-hmm. niche, especially down here in South Texas, where I'm mm-hmm. at. We are very much in the middle of conservative Bible Belt, and almost every single one of my clients has some sort of history with a distorted view of sex related to their beliefs around spirituality. Yeah. And so to be able to help them be able to, for some people, they still want to keep their spirituality, and that's fantastic, mm-hmm. but they also want to have a healthy sexuality. And so I help yeah. them figure out, how do you do that? And where did some of these distorted beliefs actually come from? Yeah. One, I think it's commendable that you, you still want to work with some of the people who have, not specifically the people that have traumatized you, but the, the group of people that have kind of been a hindrance in your life instead of a positive thing. And I also think it's funny that you you kind of credit in a way like the soft skills that you learn, but also a little bit of an alignment with what you were taught in that you were taught to love everyone. You were taught to, you know, be the hands and feet of Christ. You were taught to go and show mercy and walk humbly with God and all of that. Like, so you're actually doing those things that the church preaches. It's it's a funny joke among the um, the, the ex evangelical community mm-hmm. um, that we are doing exactly what we were raised to do, just in a very different way. Um, that we were yeah. doing exactly what we were raised to do in that we go against the flow. We actively think for ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, we do our research because they would say, do your research. But then we get upset when we actually did. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of us do. Um, we care about people and love them unconditionally. And a lot of us are actually doing exactly what we were raised to do. But we are following it to the letter of the law and listening to the teachings we were taught as children. When we mm-hmm. started applying that as adolescents and young adults, it's the exact thing that led us away from the church. I think there's something so powerful, and I think you described it beautifully in that, that there are so many people that think that deconstruction is, one, just a flippant, selfish choice. I've never met anybody that was like, this is cool. Let's just do this. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of people are specifically hurt by the church. But a lot of people don't begin their deconstruction that way. And a lot of people do see, they question the Bible's inerrancy, but that's not what starts their journey. I think, especially even for me, what started the journey was I wanted to love people. Like I wanted to, I when your pastor preaches from the pulpit against homosexuality and against gay people specifically, like you start to look at that and question, how is that love? How does this make sense? Exactly. And then I don't know, maybe you have some some thoughts on this, but I always got back when I questioned, like, how is that love? They would say, mm-hmm. well, why does loving somebody mean I have to agree with them? Mm-hmm. But my my answer is always, if you love somebody, you don't vote against them. You don't actively, you know, try mm-hmm. to distinguish their existence. Mm-hmm. But like, what would you kind of say to like the idea that people are are looking at us? People, people who have deconstructed, um, not mm-hmm. us specifically, but 
the church is looking at those who deconstruct and saying, you've got this twisted, you've got this wrong, like you, Mm -hmm. you're redefining God, you're creating him in your own image. Like, what would you kind of say to that? Right. So I have a unique perspective with it in that they still have family members that prescribe to that. And so I view it as they're coming from a place of a lot of fear, especially those who have been in the church for decades, you know, almost their whole life. And they have sacrificed so much for the church, whether you're looking at pastors, you're looking at missionaries, or just people who've had kids or grandkids walk away from them because of the church. But they are scared because if they were to admit that this current generation of young people, and when I say young people now, middle-aged adults (laughs) who have walked away from the church, if there's an inkling that we could be onto something, if there is an inkling that we could be right, even in a small way, mm-hmm. that means they have wasted decades and family members' lives over something that is completely false. And so even in that, when people try to engage in that type of conversation with me, I don't engage because unless they're actively curious, but if it's coming from a place of, well, you're just wrong and you're mad and all of that, I hear, and maybe it's the counselor side and me yeah. coming out, but I'll listen to them and it's the, I understand that you think I'm mad. I'm genuinely not. This yeah. is the best decision for my life, for my family's life. When I look at what I want for my family and the quality of life I want for my family, this is the best way to that. And mm-hmm. I tell them, I was like, if the way that you believe and the way that you're acting, you feel like is in line to giving you the quality of life that you want, then that's your decision. I will respect your autonomy mm-hmm. in that decision, but do not tell me what I'm doing is wrong when I am living the exact type of life that I want. And no. that tends to a disarm them. But I think it's also very accurate because if that generation were to admit that we were onto something, again, they would have to come to grips with the grief that they wasted their lives over a falsehood, over something that could very easily be described as a cult, as lies that were set up by uh, the generation before them. Mm -hmm. And it's heartbreaking to think you've wasted your life over a lie. Yeah. It's funny that you bring up the word cult um, because I am very adamant. And this is, again, because Chelsea's going to get mad that I say this, this is, again, (laughs) my personal opinion um, the IFB specifically is a cult. Um, there is a lot of cult taxi- tactics. I mean, just the behavior control of you have to wear mm-hmm. this, you can't talk to these people, the information control, like you can't go outside of the church. I think it's, I mean, going with the definition of independent, while mm-hmm. there are definitely movements, each church is for the most part, tried to run itself as independent. And I think Mm -hmm. some churches absolutely could be letter of the law described as a cult. Some are really close. And I think that's why even in this evangelical generation, we see such mixed responses. Mm -hmm. It's because each person has a different experience. And with going with that independent line of thinking, some were, some weren't. So then it kind of all varies from there. But there's definitely a lot of cult characteristics in almost every single independent fundamental Baptist church I've ever seen or heard of. Yes, I would agree with that. And like I said, you sometimes, especially, you know, there's still a lot of anger there, but, but it is funny to me that you did transition into therapy and counseling from your own experience kind of in therapy and counseling, because so many of us need therapy. Absolutely. After leaving the church. Yeah. And just to give you a little bit of my own, I've been in therapy for years. I am bipolar. So there's a lot of that. But then there's also, you know, we have to go through 
like EMDR um, for like right. trauma therapy. Like, what do you say to clients who are leaving the church and feel that like guilt leaving mm-hmm. the church and leaving, especially with like the whole sex culture and, and your concentration with sexuality? Like, I want to be sex positive and I love being mm-hmm. sexy and sexual and, but I feel so guilty from it. What would you right. say? So the way that I explain to clients, it's very um, neuropsychology based in that Mm -hmm. our cognitive higher functioning brain is telling us like, these are things I want to believe. These are things that logically make sense. But then our primal, more intuitive brain that, I mean, is really based on how we grew up, those childhood messages, they're arguing back and forth against each other. And so what we're doing is a slow A, desensitization, but also breaking down what Mm -hmm. are those messages exactly and where did they come from? So even if it's like an uncomfortability, like with, I know for me, a big one, like wearing pants, because mm-hmm. right? I wore skirts from eight, if I was eight years old until a young adult. And so that first time wearing pants was king and it felt like I was a horrible person. Logically, I knew it was okay. Emotionally, I wasn't there yet. And mm-hmm. so it was a lot of anxiety management, a lot of, okay, this is the scripture verse I was taught. This is the messages I was taught that was related to women wearing pants. Um, this is why I believe that's not true anymore. And mm-hmm. I'm an okay person if I were to, you know, wear these yeah. pants. And a lot of anxiety management in that. So we do a lot of that emotional processing, but then a lot of the behavioral processing, the calming down, the anxiety management when they are mm-hmm. actually implementing those behaviors that they do want to. Um, yeah. And the way, and I want to say the way I describe it for clinicians who maybe aren't familiar with people who have left the church, right? Yeah. So either I'm mentoring them or teaching them, like, these are the steps. And I'm trying to explain conceptually what we go through when we leave. I was like, it is a lot of the same, actually, interventions as well that you use for someone who has left an extremely abusive long-term relationship that has been in existence since childhood. So these are the victims that we see were um, molested by parents. Um, Mm -hmm. These are molested by, you know, long-term family members, or they've been groomed since they were a young child. Um, They have nothing Mm -hmm. to do with religion, right? And so I'm saying the training that we're taught in working with those types of clients, and then they leave and escape, there's a very, very similar intervention to what you use for people who are deconstructing, because that isn't, I think, exactly what happened. We were in a very abusive toxic relationship with God in the church and so when you leave you're having to deprogram from all of those messages literally from childhood but also what you're doing is your entire life you've been promised if you follow the rules from this book your life will be amazing mm-hmm. you never have to think for yourself you never have to you you just go like you follow the rules and everything's supposed to work and so to have all of those rules be actively destroyed in front of you and for you to realize that I have nothing to hold on to right I I don't know what to do I have to make decisions for myself and I have to be responsible for those decisions is paralyzing in fear Mm -hmm. sometimes and it's absolutely overwhelming and so working through as a counselor what we do is work a lot with um, executive functioning decision making being okay with making mistakes being okay with not being perfect quote-unquote um, being okay, you know, with learning and growing, often we have a stunted and delayed emotional growth just because, and like constructive and executive critical mm-hmm. thinking growth, 
because we didn't get that experience as teenagers and young adults of making our own decisions. We're having to do that in our late 20s or 30s or longer. And so when I explain it to other clinicians, that's how I explain it and how to work with people who are leaving that environment. That's powerful. I was listening to you talk and I'm like, wow, I feel so much better about my life. Um, Because it is, it is a very scary, terrifying thing. Um, And the idea that you brought up of, you know, you, you follow the rules. This is the rule book. You just do it. And it was, it's kind of funny because at least in my experience, um, when I stopped following those rules, I became a better person. Exactly. Like I am, and I say this and people get mad at me, but I am objectively a better person since leaving the church because I am falling back on the teachings, mm-hmm. but actually going about them and following the teachings. Right. Doing it because you want to, not because you're being scared into doing yeah, it. Yeah. And it's not in the prescribed way. Mm-hmm. And then that way is bringing harm to people. Like I look back and I'm like, God, I hate who I was, which you know, something I'm working on with my therapist, but, (laughs) but yeah, so I want to ask because we are, you know, wrapping up on the hour and I know you've got a family and you're pregnant and you've got a lot of stuff going on in your life. Um, It also says the remaining meeting time is a minute. Do you want to go ahead and end this and start a new one? Yeah, we can do that. Okay. There you are. Cool. Okay. Um, so unless I come up with another question, um, I did just kind of want to give you the opportunity to to say anything that, you know, you really feel is, you know, pertinent to the idea of deconstructing, how to start deconstruction if you're, you know, a Christian listening and you're like, I kind of still want to be a Christian, but I don't know, or just kind of anything in your personal experience that you want to share um, with everybody yeah. about whatever you want. Yeah, awesome. Um, so, and this is the brief clip you, uh, you can edit out, but like, I do want this next portion that I say about my parents to be in there. Um, so something that I think is important to know just in the deconstruction in general, but specifically for my deconstruction Mm -hmm. is I had to really look at why did my parents decide to get involved in the church and especially how being a parent myself, I feel like I get it a lot more. And some Mm -hmm. people will, you know, feel a little awkward me saying that but the idea that there could be a movement a book that guarantees your kids are going to be happy you will have a great marriage the idea that you're you know you do this and your kids will have an amazing life it's so appealing if that were true and and I genuinely and every parent is different right and so I know for some people maybe their parents attached the church with very negative intentions I don't believe that was the case with a lot of parents, including my own. Mm -hmm. I feel like they genuinely were trying to find the best solution for their kids. And when you look at historically what happened in the 70s and in the 80s and the 90s, and, you know, actively working and studying the conservative movement, it it made sense where they were at. They were so desperate. They wanted something that worked for their family. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, they got sucked in a little too hard right weren't aware of the signs Mm -hmm. a lot of what we were taught was behind our parents back and that's something that I want people to hear and also be aware for their own kids I know I get very skeptical now over putting my kids into anything because a lot of what I was taught my parents had no idea what was going on they trusted the authorities in the church 
And the authorities in the church were telling us all these things and all these abusive lies that were grooming and abusive and totally distorted our thinking. And our parents had no idea. Yeah. And so being able to look and realize that was where my parents were coming from was huge for me. And I think it also helps me in understanding where a lot of people were coming from. Mm-hmm. Um, so that part I think is really important to note. Again, that wasn't the case for every person, and I'm sure for some people's parents it's very different. But I feel like for the majority, and my parents included, it came from a really good place. So with your the doctorate that you're pursuing with sex and sexuality, there was a lot of purity culture movements probably around the time that you were in church as well in the, you know, especially the late 90s, early 2000s. Um, So tell me what you think the lasting harm that has been done um, with purity culture is. Yeah. So actually, that is the exact topic of my dissertation. And what I'm looking at is I am studying the effects of um, those who are exposed to purity culture as a minor from 1990 to 2005, as specifically for cisgender heterosexual white women, just because they were the population that was the most kind of targeted, Um, and to narrow down obviously the field of research, but to look at the effects sexually and spiritually. And because so far there hasn't been, to my knowledge, any study looking at exactly that. Um, There's been a lot of studies looking at the spiritual side effects of conservative religion, And there's lots of studies looking at the sexuality side effects of absence-only sex education, but nothing for those bringing those two together in that cross. Mm -hmm. So that is the focus. I've done a lot of research on this. And based from what I suspect I will find, but you can follow up in a year and I'll let you know my exact findings. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, What I suspect I'll find is a blend of what the studies show for both spirituality and then sexuality. And that obviously it is harmful. Um, but specifically for sexuality, because we weren't really taught, again, those critical thinking skills about how to make positive sexual decisions with partners for our bodies. Why are we making these decisions? It was very black or white. And when we, when you teach someone that, especially adolescents who don't have the higher executive functioning skills yet to think through things, and they don't have the emotional application yet to think through the logic given, once you cross that line, right, of, okay, well, I kissed someone, I'm not here anymore, I might as well have sex, right, and that's a, kind of. a, lot yeah. of, a lot of this went down, and because, again, we weren't taught those critical thinking skills, and again, mm-hmm. I think it came from a place of fear, but we're seeing now so many of us who were raised in, really, it started about um, the early 1990s, mm-hmm. um, actually going with a lot of the public school education when it was signed the True Love Waits Act was signed in 1992 by Bill Clinton up until the early 2000s when we started to see more research come into play. Absence only sex education has been in existence for a long time, hundreds of years, right? But that's really kind of the core of where the public absence only sex education and the church movement came together was during the period Mm -hmm. of that 15, almost 20 years, if you want to reach to 2010. Mm -hmm. It's still in existence today, but a lot of the big writers um, specifically, Josh Harris has come out and recanted all of everything he said. Yeah. Um, we know his former wife just put out a book that we're super excited to read Shannon, by Shannon Harris. Mm-hmm. And so seeing that research, I think it just brought to light how harmful it, it was on our emotional state, our sexual development, 
And I feel like a lot of us, after we left, sometimes made poor sexual decisions because we didn't have the education of what else to do. Um, it was still on us, right? Our responsibility for decisions we make as adults. However, it is really, I think, a testament to the lack of teachings we were given mm-hmm. there. And then spiritually, it impacts us too because our spirituality and sexuality were so intertwined in that you are a good Christian if you don't have sex. You are a better Christian mm-hmm. if you don't kiss, right? And mm-hmm. you all of those different things. And I remember talking to someone, even not in the independent female Baptist world, but just in another strain where she was, she wore a head covering. And she was like, I think it would be amazing if my husband didn't know the color of my hair before our wedding night. And so you had all these different levels of extremes to kind of prove how mm-hmm. you're a Christian. And it wasn't ever just, what do I want? That's mm-hmm. not this external standard. It's not a competitiveness. It's interesting that you bring up the intersection of like the public school teachings and the Christian, like in Christian teachings, um, because obviously in the IFB, a lot of people homeschool. Yes, I and K through 12. So, and I posted something about how we should be talking about the fact that like anal sex can still give you STDs. Mm-hmm. And I got called a pedophile for mm-hmm. wanting seventh graders, seventh graders, they're like mm-hmm. 12, 13, to be taught that anal sex can still give you pe- or, uh, STDs. Mm-hmm. And it was these homeschool people who were like, this is what this, the, the us against them uh, mentality of like, this is what the public school wants to teach. And this is awful. And you're a pedophile. I was like, I'm not asking anybody to draw anything or demonstrate, no. but like a lot of young kids... 13, 14 do start having sex and they should and get a lot the of information. The girls start having anal sex. Especially Christian like, girls. Absolutely. Because I mean there was a whole, you know, the yes. the <laughs> whole song about it. But um it is prevalent and it should be talked about. But it was another thing that like the church used as an us versus mm-hmm. them when it came to sexuality, like sex at all. It was like, oh, the, the school even talks about sex. We don't right. talk about sex. But like right. not explaining how to do it doesn't mean that you didn't talk about it. Because that's, exactly. like we said, that's all they talked about. Exactly. And I think that just goes into the importance of being able to critically look at research. Mm-hmm. That is scientific research. Look at is this good research or not? Um, which is a reason I was so grateful for my education because that was a huge part in helping me work through some of those kind of fine tuning those issues Yeah. because I was able to go, well, I don't believe the Bible anymore, but I don't want to just jump on the bandwagon of some, you know, liberal quote unquote, who right. says, believe this. I want to figure this out for me. And but I also didn't trust myself to figure it out. And so right. I went to scientific research and that's a lot of where I developed my beliefs from. And so yeah. I was like, well, what does science say about absence only ed- education? Solid research has been done since the early 2000s. It does not work. It shows that the rate of when you lose your virginity is slightly younger for those who are raised in absence only sex education. The rates of um, STIs are higher. The rate of um, unplanned pregnancies is higher just because you don't have the knowledge, you don't have the facts. Mm-hmm. And so when people try to come and say, oh, this is awful, I it, there's no point. I don't believe in arguing with people. Yeah. I believe in informing people and letting them make their own decisions. And yeah. so I'll just say based on the research and I can send you all the articles, 
This is what yeah. science says. And so I understand you don't agree with it, but for my family, we're going to follow what science and research says. And science and research says that when you teach kids age-appropriate sexual facts, age-appropriate sexual education, which starts from the time they are born, that starts mm-hmm. from the time of teaching my son anatomically correct terms mm-hmm. of his genitalia, that teaching, you know, this is who's appropriate to touch you and who's not appropriate to touch you. And this is your areas that no one else needs to touch you in your class. And that is proper sex education. And when he gets older, we will teach and he starts asking questions. We will teach him age appropriate facts. Yeah. Not connected to emotions, not connected to the value system that we want to portray on him. It's just facts. And then he can make those, take those facts and help base them into decisions that work for him. It's so interesting hearing somebody who whose brain works scientifically because mine mm-hmm. does not. I like mm-hmm. science isn't the first thing I go to. I love arguing. I base yes. everything on emotion. But I love the idea of, you know, teaching kids from the beginning, you know, the anatomical correct terms. My son is 11 months old today. And he, every time I change his diaper, I was like, I know you hate this eventually, you know, you can't mm-hmm. consent to this, but sometimes mommy has to do things to keep you mm-hmm. safe and healthy. Like he's 11 months old and I'm already telling him that. Absolutely. So do you have any kind of recommendations? I guess this is even more on a personal level, but do you have any recommendations for for going about teaching kids about sexuality? Um, I believe in A, the parents themselves need to go through proper sex education, which a lot of us were missing that. And so I really do encourage parents individually, but then also as a couple, if you are still in partnership with your co-parent, to talk through these conversations, talk through these awkward conversations. What are you going to do when your four-year-old asks, why is my penis sticking up? Right? What are you going to do? Are you going to say, oh, don't touch that. We don't talk about it. Or are you going to explain when a lot of blood hits your penis, it stands up. If you relax and don't touch it, it'll go down. Yeah. Oh, okay. That's literally how simple those conversations have to go. But yeah. the minute that you say, oh, don't touch that. Oh, we don't talk about it. Or you get embarrassed and you get flustered. You're going to be projecting and passing that shame down yeah. to your child. And so the first step is parents getting proper sex education and being on the same page with your co-parent. Yeah. If your co-parent is not on the same page, that's unfortunate, but it's still your responsibility. That's so cool. And I think, so you say you brought up the word shame. And this is another thing my therapist and I have a lot of talks about. One of the first things we went through was the difference between guilt and shame. Mm-hmm. And she says that guilt says I did something bad, but shame says I am bad. And the idea that like shame had its place in ancient times with like staying with the tribe, all of that, like, mm-hmm. but the idea that there is so much shame and shame brings trauma because guilt is just, I did something wrong. I need to apologize. I need to make it right. But you can't make that shame right because Mm -hmm. you feel bad. You feel dirty. You feel like this is not okay. I am not okay because I am doing this. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a very interesting, uh, interesting that you brought up the word shame. Yes. And if we look at shame, even theologically, and Mm -hmm. this is, my nerd brain goes out, yeah, but no. shame is such a core foundational belief of Christianity because mm-hmm. we are taught you are nothing more than filthy rags, right? Yep. Those filthy yep. rags being, they were the rags used to clean the wounds that were protruding from people. They were infectious. They could cause death. And if we were taught that we were the equivalent of that, that is shame. We were taught in order to have a relationship with Christ, we have to be dirty and filthy and infectious and cause people death. Mm-hmm. 
so that shame has been taught to us from the time we were born, a lot of us. Yeah. Um, time I remember four or five years old, even before we got in the conservative Christian church, being taught that. And so shame feels almost natural. Mm-hmm. Shame feels like we can't exist without it because it's part of our identity. And so to pull that away from the core of who we are and our identity, it, it's, it's an undertaking. Yeah. And there, there, I think there's always going to be some hardwiring there that those, we may always be predispositioned to fall back into that shame. Mm-hmm. And so holding ourselves accountable and reminding ourselves of no, like what this thought, this belief is not shameful, yeah. right? Maybe I made a mistake, but it doesn't mean I am a mistake. Mm-hmm. It's huge. And I believe it's going to be a lifelong journey for many of us. What's funny is I know, and I know I used to say this as a Christian, and I know this was me because before I got into the IFB, I was more in an evangelical church. And I just, I, I know people who think that saying those things is, is a soul winning endeavor. Like they think that that's like, oh my God, you're going to want to come to Christ because you're awful. Yeah. I don't understand that, but it is so hardwired in all of us, not all of us, but I don't want to make generalizations, but it is so hardwired in many of us that we are lower than dirt. Like we are the worst thing that could happen to the earth. And then yet at the Mm -hmm. same time, God made us in his image, Mm -hmm. but we're also awful. It's a great marketing scheme. It really is. As a business owner, it hits all the points of what you're looking for as a marketing scheme and that you look for a pain point and then you say how you're going to fix the pain point. Um, And so it's, I mean, at the end of the day, that's what it is. I feel like the conservative Christian church hit upon a really good marketing scheme for where the generations were at um, coming from the seventies and Mm eighties. You had a lot of people who were hurt by the kind of free love and more liberal mindset. And so they were looking for an alternative. They were looking for safety. And that is exactly in the eighties when all of this started popping up. And so people were hurting, people were vulnerable, and the several key people, Bill Gothard, Jack Hiles, you know, all of them, they took advantage of those hurting people and pulled them in. Interesting. I always thought this kind of like stuff was like when I read To Kill a Mockingbird and it was like set in the 60s or the 50s or 60s or whatever, and it was like no dancing, no whatever, like the Baptists. That's where I thought all of this stemmed from, but... It's, it definitely, some of it did historically, if you look at it, because the conservative church has always been there, mm-hmm. um, but specifically looking at the independent fundamental Baptist movement, okay. it was more looking around the 80s is when it started to pick up really strong traction. In order to get traction, they had to have been in existence for a while anyway, mm-hmm. but it's just like a business scheme. It depends on, are you hitting the right market at the right time? Yeah. And, and that was when the conservative church that had always been there, it just was a, it was just a meeting of a bunch of hurt people at the same time mm-hmm. they hopped on. And that's why it's now projected into then the late eighties, nineties, early two thousands. We're now hitting the second generation, um, sometimes even third generation of mm-hmm. conservative Christianity. And people are realizing because they didn't have that initial hurt, realizing right. this doesn't make sense. Yeah. And so I'm hoping that now with those of us who are leaving, we'll be able to find that balance. Mm-hmm. We'll be able to find that balance of living in a very healthy, educated, informed way that is not stemming from hurt or not stemming from trying to um, overcompensate for anything. But we are actively taking control of our futures, control of our mindsets, and actively trying to pass that on to the next generation in a really empowering way. And we're not projecting our own 
values and our own shame, our own guilt or our own anger Mm -hmm. onto the next generation. Yeah. Oh my God. I'd love talking to you. I could just talk to you (laughs) all night, Um, which is insane. Cause like, I don't know, listening to you talk, I'm like, just keep talking. Just, just keep talking. I just want to hear you talk. This is something I'm so passionate about. Yeah. And I so passionate about just helping people to heal. Um, I know I've been through just such, such a journey of my own. Um, yeah. Just to be able to help people move forward is just, is ap- and I found, I hesitate saying life calling, so it's such a churchy thing to say. That is such a churchy thing. I always laugh when those old terms come out, but I feel like it's something that helps give me purpose and is in alignment with yeah. my values and what I believe. Yeah. I love that you keep bringing that back to like, it's in alignment with what I believe, Mm -hmm. you know, and not like what other people believe. There's no external motivation behind it. This is who I am. And this is what I believe. And this is what makes me feel comfy. Like I am not, you know, doing this to please anybody else. And I am also not compromising what I know is right and true to me. So I do love that. Oh, first of all, um, what are you doing? How are you doing your study? And do you need like participants in your study? Um, I will in the summer. So um, I'm still getting everything approved. I'm hoping that it gets approved in about May, okay. uh, May or June. And so about July, I'm going to, or even hope maybe a little earlier, um, I'm going to start looking for participants. And then, okay. yeah, I would love to reach out. Yeah. See if you can yeah. So Alyssa, thank you so much for being with us today. Um, I just wanted to make sure everybody knows you know, where they can find you and about your practice. Yeah, absolutely. So I own Natural Balance Counseling. It's based just north of Houston, Texas. And so it's a private mental health therapy practice where both me and then employees practice as well. Um, Just where we work with adults of all ages, ranges, concerns. It's not just spirituality focused. It's not just sexuality focused. Um, I have counselors that work with um, maternal mental health, individuals of color, um, family generational trauma, and obviously I do a lot of sexuality and spirituality work. We also just do general relationship counseling, divorce counseling, anxiety, depression. And so we can see anybody within the state of Texas through telehealth or obviously in person in Houston. And so that's something if anybody's interested in services, they can absolutely reach out. There can be details in the show notes. Um, about the website and how to get a hold of us and then also on Amazon I have a book called Intentional Self-Love it's a small workbook and it's just it's a quick easy read but I wanted something to get people started down that journey because we talk about self-love all the time right but to be able to really start that journey figure out what in the world does this mean in a very practical way um, it's a tool that people can use to get started on that And then I'm working and hoping to publish some other books in the future, specifically looking at more about my journey with spirituality, um, publishing the results of my dissertation, and to help people more specifically along the lines of what we're talking about today. That's awesome. I am definitely going to go buy that book as soon as we're done here. Um, (laughs) And I just want everyone to know that I am hoping that Alyssa will continue to be a friend of the show and come back. Um, so hopefully this is not the last time you hear from her and we will definitely let you know every time she publishes a book. (laughs) Thank you so much. I'd love that. And thank you so much for providing this opportunity to talk about this really important topic. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for coming and talking to me today. Absolutely. 
If you or anyone you know has a story that they would like to share about their own deconstruction experience, their own experience in a cult, please send them our way. You can email us at drinkanddeconstructpodcast at gmail.com or you can follow us on Instagram at drinkanddeconstructpod and send us a DM over there. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Drink and Deconstruct podcast. I'm your host, Grace Marino, and I hope you had a great time with us today. See you next week.